was with my dad, he sold printing equipment and sort of, he never would have claimed to know anything about this stuff, but he had this natural intuition and sort of pleasure in that sort of thing and was sort of my early mentor in that world, oddly enough. I might have been nine years old, eight years old or so. And uh, he pointed out a logo that's for a heavy equipment manufacturer called Clark. It was on the side of a forklift truck. And he said, oh, look at the way they've written the name. Isn't that clever? And I'm like, well, clever how? I just was, I saw C-L-A-R-K. And he said, well, look how the bottom part of the L is lifting up the side of the A, just the same way the truck lifts things up. And I I was like gobsmacked by that. I mean, the idea that someone had been given the chore of putting a name on the side of a truck and put in that little grace note just for my dad, a secret thing, you know, to provide some joy and delight to some random people at a street corner in uh, Garfield Heights, Ohio. I just thought, you know, a world that contains tiny miracles like this is a world worth living in. Michael Beirut is a proper gentleman. With his sharp dress punctuated by an iconic hat and scarf, he moves through a room with the gravity of one of the world's best-known designers. But his iconic status is paired with an arresting attentiveness. He'll write you a surprising and unexpected personal note thanking you for something you should probably be thanking him for. That personable attitude comes through in conversation. In this episode of First Things First, we'll discuss how your own children could become the best critics of your work, the perils and pitfalls of holding on to a stubborn ideology, and the deliciously reductive work of book jacket design. I grew up in suburban Cleveland and not the prosperous, sophisticated suburbs of Cleveland, but the southwest suburbs, which were very decisively middle class, if that. I was good at art, but impatient or didn't think I, I quite had the attention span or even quite saw the point of just kind of like doing art for art's sake. Ironic because I think one cliched route to being a graphic designer, at least, is you you really want to be a fine artist and not have clients be liberated from all that. Just kind of use it as a vehicle for your own creative expression. And you grudgingly take on clients because you need the money and you sort of sell out. And the whole time you're kind of like just you want to get back into your art, right? Well, I, I sort of like... I remember like thinking, well, I'm really, I was good at art and I liked doing it, but I just couldn't quite see what the point was of it. But yet I would see things like movie posters or album covers or things that now I would call logos, but I wasn't even sure what they were then. And I can tell there was some sort of creative thing happening in there, but I couldn't fathom like where these things happened, how one trained to become a person that participated in that. But I was lucky. I found him. They're having me a book in my high school library about uh, called Aim for a Career in Art slash Graphic Design. And I'll, I opened up that book and I thought, oh, my God, uh, this is what I want to do. Confronted with uh, art versus design, in many ways, it's like, do I want to do something that will be interred in a, if I'm incredibly lucky, in a room in a gallery where sophisticated people may choose to make time in their busy days to go visit it? Or alternately, do I want to do something that's going to just be ubiquitous in the world, right? And um, I just always like that second path. If I could just do something that, you know, you'd see on a construction site, <laughs> that, would, that would make me so happy. And still does. It still does. So it's, it's, so I think it is, um, 
It's acknowledging, I think, that graphic design is fulfilling a social function and has a social component. It's about communication, and that implies that there's a uh, sender and a receiver to the degree we get to shape what those messages are between those parties. We're challenged to kind of get out in the world and understand what people want to say, what people need to hear, how you get from point A to point B. What I'm hearing that I find fascinating because it's an interest of mine is the an idea idea of accessibility around yeah, some, yeah. around design and how design can be a method by which you can make connections between groups of people who may not otherwise have those connections. In many circles, design is sort of seen as something that somehow kind of quote-unquote adds value or even signifies that this thing is expensive. This thing is fancier than other things and is worth more money. And if you buy it, you'll be able to send signals to other people that you bought something that costs more and you can afford these things, right? And, you know, I teach in an MBA program at Yale at the School of Management there. Beginning of the semester, you'll sort of poll the students and you'll get a lot of people thinking that, that's sort of what design is, you know, that uh, a pair of Louboutins are designed and sneakers are not somehow. And the idea that everything is designed, some things are badly designed or unconsciously designed, but everything human made is the uh, product of a series of decisions and plans that really are one way or another familiar to designers as part of the design process. It's hard to be educated as a designer without having terms like this is the right way to do it and this is the wrong way to do it. This is good design. This is bad design. And so I'm not a pure relativist in terms of all design is valid and all design is equally good. I do think some things are just like badly fit for their purpose, that things, some things overtly do harm to the world in either egregious or sometimes very modest and incremental ways. Some things just look super ugly and stupid to me. Some of those same things may look cool to someone else. And so there's a part of it that really lapses into taste and arbitrariness. And so it's a it's always been a complicated thing to navigate. But part of my secret as a designer, I think, part of what's really shaped me is uh, it just so happened that I uh, married my high school sweetheart back in suburban Cleveland. She was not then and is to this day not a designer. I believe that's why we've raised three children, none of whom are designers. My kids are very good critics of my work, very funny and cynical critics of my work. My wife can barely rouse herself to be a critic of my work at this point after 40 plus years of being together and hearing me kind of go on about this stuff at length. If I get to go to a uh, you know a conference like Design Thinkers in Toronto, I get to luxuriate by being surrounded by a bunch of people who uh, really are excited about design. You know, I've never been able to lose sight of the fact that for a lot of people, what we do is completely under the surface at best. And yet, I think the decisions we make do have consequences. They're not just uh, meaningless hand-waving for our own and our knowing friends' amusement. I think that uh, there are choices to be made in how messages are communicated and how experiences are shaped. Every one of us is challenged using our own point of view, our own talent, our own experience, our own opinions about what constitutes the right way to do it and the wrong way to do it to kind of move things forward. That, I mean, gets to 
something that I'm really interested in speaking with you about is this concept of subjectivity and authorship and, and maybe not even perhaps authorship so much as authority. And you describe early in your career, no one cared about what you did. And now in the later part of your life, people care about what you do. Yeah. And so for you, what has been the experience of that transition, say, from supporting authority in a way to then becoming a supreme authority in this, yeah, in yeah. this field? Like, What has that experience been for you? It's curious to go through that the transition you're describing. I was lucky at a fantastic job. I, I worked for Massimo Vignelli, first job out of school. And I and he really did deploy all the trappings of glamour, authority, charisma in design in order to attract clients and in order to have clients agree to his recommendations. He was completely impassioned about design in general, its transformative power, and unabashedly delighted in his own ability to create great work. A lot of it got got encased in sort of uh, ideology as he went forward. You know, why only use five typefaces or why modernism as an approach to design is superior to alternative approaches. But working side by side with him, he wasn't, I actually feel that the work he created wasn't the product of ideology or theory it was in, intuitive to him. The way he made it look was the way he had to make it look. It's the only way it looked right to him. And it's just so happened that the way he liked to make things look corresponded with not just an aesthetic, but a series of design decisions that were often incredibly functional. If you're hiring someone to sort out the signage in your incredibly complicated urban transit system, you don't want someone whose primary interest is self-expression or elaborate detail or toying with multiple meanings and obfuscation. You want someone who likes the way clarity looks, you know? And I think Massimo liked clarity and he really liked the way clarity looks. I think those are kind of oddly enough intuitive choices, right? So when I started working for him, I was just used to being the, the youngest person in the room and if I said something, it would be like, oh, he talks, you know. You know, no one pays much attention to you because you're in your 20s. And then you get a little bit older. And if you have some ability or you have anything going for you, whatever your hustle is, you start to attract some attention. Then, you know, if you keep at it long enough, when you're in your 50s, suddenly people are actually giving you authority that is, that in my opinion, is often undeserved. You know, if, why was it, why is that? Why is it undeserved? I, I mean, I'm, I'm quote unquote a famous designer. I mean, I'd rather have someone hire me because they don't know who I am. They meet me. They hear me say something intelligent. I ask them some good questions. They've seen some work that I've done that seems to indicate that I might be able to help them with the work that they are looking to get done. And that's my favorite kind of client. If it's someone who just sort of has decided I want the best or everyone talks about this guy, I want that guy to do it, you know, I, I don't think that's necessarily a good reason to hire someone. People are buying insurance sometimes or they're buying reflected fame, certainly with a lot of the work that Vignelli would do. And he did work not just in graphic design, but architecture, interior design, product design, too. And it always struck me that when he'd be asked to design a chair— for, for a furniture company, let's say, you know that it wasn't like 
someone at the furniture company was sitting around saying, you know, this chair problem, you know, mankind just has not quite cracked it. You know, I've seen a lot of chairs and none of them seem quite right. We need to get a smart guy to really apply his intelligence to this thing. How about that Massimo Vienna? Let's have him design a chair. No, someone says, look, the big trade show's coming up. We need to create some buzz. What if we had, who's hot? Oh, let's get Vignelli to design a chair, right? I mean, they want it to be a nice chair. Massimo wants it to be comfortable. Everyone wants it to sell a lot. But actually, that impulse to get that done has to do with the badge of the designer name, which I sort of have to admit is something that that mantle sits really uneasily on my shoulders. Like, I just think people want a Michael Beirut design. I don't even know what that would be. And I try to deflect that. I just say I'm just, you know, I'm an anonymous battlefield surgeon. This episode of First Things First is brought to you by Shopify. Shopify is an e-commerce platform that makes it easy for anybody to build an online shop. No design experience required. Visit media.frontier.is forward slash first things first to get started and join over 600,000 businesses now powered by Shopify. So while you were working under Vignelli, you started working on your own side projects and developed a sort of mantra. Uh, stay up late, you mean, yeah. When I, the amount of energy that I brought to bear on my work when I was young and had seemingly infinite amounts of energy, more importantly, I couldn't afford any of the things that might serve as useful distractions. I lived with my new wife in a really tiny claustrophobic apartment. She had to go to bed early because she had to wake up super early and put on a business suit and go work downtown. I worked three blocks from our tiny little apartment. She would have left for work an hour and a half, two hours before I was even out of bed. And at the end of the day, she'd go to bed three hours before I would. And so I started bringing work home, and then I got a key to the office, and I would just kind of like tuck her in, do the dishes, kill the cockroaches. And then I'd walk three blocks back to the office, spend a couple hours working, redoing stuff that I had done during the day, me getting a jump on things I'd been assigned so I could take on even another thing when morning came. Freebies for friends, overdoing announcements for parties or little gig posters for buddies who had some kind of band or show they were putting on. I I just kind of treated each one of those things as if it was going to be the most important thing I'd ever designed. You know, it's that cliche about your countryman, Malcolm Gladwell, who will talk about the, what is it, 10,000 hours? How many hours are you supposed to do before you get good at something? I mean, I'm not sure that's the number, but for sure, that was how I got good at design, was just by doing it like crazy, right? And have you found that that's changed for young designers? I'm not positive it's the same, actually. When I was doing that work, I don't think I had the same motivations that people a decade or two before me had, because I could sense from them that they really thought that they had discovered something new, that the world was filled with things that needed that discovery. You know, from Paul Rand to Vignelli to the the modernists who came of age in the post-war years in the mid-20th century, all the way through to the 60s and stuff. You know, the ideological motivation really had to do with the idea that good design was a way to improve people's lives, right? And that simple, clear Helvetica packaging would have an ennobling sort of quality for people in a store who otherwise would be faced with confusing and sentimental claptrap that seemed to be ascribing false value just through fancy filigree. Whereas, you know, if what's in that package is just salt, S 
S-A-L-T. Just fucking say salt and hope that I can meet him. I missed that. I never partook of that true believer thing. Instead, I, I just thought... I love the way Helvetica Medium looked, but I loved I liked the way a lot of things looked. I mean, I, I remember seeing work from people who Massimo just hated. Their work drove him crazy. He would, like, throw things in the garbage can. I'd be in his office. He'd be opening his mail, opening packages. Someone would send him a beautiful book they had designed, and he would literally say, ah, this is horrible. Look at this. It's terrible. And he'd, like, pitch it in the garbage can. And I would sort of, like, quietly wait and then he'd go out to lunch, and I'd sneak in his office, fish it out the garbage can, and take it home. So I was always less ideological, more eclectic about it. But my motivation to do all the work had less to do with every time I designed something, I was taking something that was bad and making it good. It just was the delirious thrill of making something in and of itself. It's what really excited me. It was like it was really addictive. I want to return to a theme that I've heard throughout that I know you'd have an interesting opinion on. It's, it's starting with the idea of book cover design. Yeah. And describing it as deliciously reductive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The notion of design is, uh, distillation mm-hmm. and, and clarity is part of that too. But for you, what is the process or importance of that distillation and that clarity within the practice of design? Distillation and clarity, that means something different to me than white space or sans serif typography or minimalism, quote unquote. A lot of what I find myself doing as a designer is um, trying to reconcile three things. I remember in college when in design school, we had some professor who told us that, you know, design was about reconciling semantics, semiotics, and pragmatics. And then Vignelli would say, discipline appropriateness and beauty or something. Oh God, I'm really embarrassed. I used to know those three things in the back of my hand. But then Vitruvius had his three things, right? And there are, there are always like these three things that you're trying to satisfy for any design problem. For one, you're trying to like do something that discharges some function. It has to like work, right? It has to do the thing it was designed to do. Two, it has to do it in a way that is specific to its context that may actually, if it's useful to have it look different from other things that do the same thing, it should look different in a way that actually makes sense for what it is, right? And then finally, if it can give people some pleasure as a bonus almost, that's like the home run, right? You know, say if you're designing a book cover, the function of a book cover is to signal to a potential reader if this is the kind of thing you like, you're going to like this kind of thing. And then there's a lot of subtle cues that you have to know how to deploy to to do that. And they change now and then. But there's a way that big, fancy bestseller looks versus literary fiction versus a biography versus nonfiction versus something that's going to be fun to read versus something that's going to be challenging to read. Book cover designers are constantly manipulating color, image, typeface, all these things to sort of like – send those signals out, right? And so part of it is just kind of like, I need to make someone pick up this book and maybe buy it. It also needs to um, kind of reflect the thing that's behind the cover. In theory, if the problem is it's a rectangle, it's in a bookstore, you need to make it stand out amidst the other rectangles. That sort of is, that's the the bare-ass statement of function, right? But it doesn't actually tell you what to do because you're also trying to like figure out how it can be a rectangle that's uniquely suited to sit 
on the cover of that book as opposed to all the other books. Good designers get those two things, and I try to score 100% on those two things when I'm uh, doing my work. It's that last one, the kind of like delight or surprise or the beauty part, however you define it, that's a little bit hard to get to, right? Sometimes it's, it's like so sort of like you've solved the first two in a way that just is a little bit like a magic trick. And sometimes three things are so closely bound together that they're inseparable. Sometimes you're adding something that's really, it's in a way it's your own interpretation of the author's intent that is unasked for and unbidden in some cases resented, but it's the kind of thing that actually, if the kind of the book is supposed to make someone smile, maybe you can somehow figure out a way to make the cover itself perform that function, right? Make someone smile through beauty or humor or, or surprise or delight or something, right? And so it's those three things together, which can, you know, I think if you get them all really carefully interlocked, you've done something that's a really a distillation and is very reductive because it's a combination of two things, book covers specifically are a combination of like consumer packaging, which is it's all out war of all against all in the context of the shelves of a retail environment. But then it's also meant to, somehow pay honor the time and intelligence that an author has put into the contents of that book. What's next? That's a good question. When you get to be old like me, you sort of like start thinking what you want to do next. Um, I've just been trying to figure out if you have a certain amount of experience and it's given you on one hand, a kind of authority that you can manipulate. On the other hand, the threat of, of irrelevance. I'm very conscious of how the baby boomers have successfully, you know, are getting really close to destroying the entire world, you know, partly through neglect and partly through greed and self-centeredness and partly through actual, you know, to my surprise and horror, a lot of just sheer malevolence, right? So sometimes I think us baby boomers just get the hell out of the way and let younger people actually fix things and we should just cower in the corner and hope that we're not ultimately all taken on hung, which we pr- might richly deserve. You might cut this part out of the podcast <laughs> and sort of just take an entire turn. But, um, uh, or it sounds like an actual open invitation, in which case, you know, do your worst. But, um, but I think, um, um, you know, part of what I, you know, what I'd love to do is figure out a way to be of use to the design community, to the people that I work with and to the people who have worked with me over the years. There are things that I think I'm good at that I alone can do, but that list of things is getting um, shorter and shorter, and maybe it's just things that, that only an old guy with a certain amount of experience can do. And it might be time just to focus on that. I have to admit, still, I can remember the first few things I designed, you know, inspired by my favorite album cover or that Clark truck logo, rubbing down that first piece of press type. Every once in a while, the same day that I'm kind of like planning my retirement, I'll have an instance where an idea will occur to me or I'll be working with someone on my design team and we'll move something a little closer to the left or make something bigger or smaller. And suddenly we'll have that little moment of, oh, that's that's perfect. That's exactly the way it should be, you know. That was the thing that had me um, coming back to the office at, at midnight to work for three more hours. And, you know, I think every day when I go into work, I secretly just want that to happen again so I can stay forever young. For more about Michael, follow at mbeirut on Instagram and visit pentagram.com. 
First Things First is produced by Max Cotter. Frontier Media is a part of Frontier, a design office based in Toronto, Canada. We believe that design is more than visual. It's a process of exploration, discovery, sketching, prototyping, iteration, and refinement. That process can help create a better world. Our mission is to help others understand how that goal can be accomplished. To do this, we use design to create better and more purposeful products. We publish a magazine and produce this podcast to explore and celebrate the risks people take in the process of creating things that are original and worthwhile. And we work with clients to help them define their purpose and tell their story. To learn more, visit www.frontier.is. First Things First is recorded in Toronto and Vancouver at the Design Thinkers Conference, organized by our founding partners at RGD, the Association of Registered Graphic Designers, who represent over 3,800 design practitioners, including firm owners, freelancers, managers, educators, and students. Through RGD, Canadian designers exchange ideas, educate and inspire, set professional standards, and build a strong, supportive community dedicated to advocating for the value of design.